This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. today. I'm Erin Straza and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. We're so glad you're with us this week. We're in the middle of a series we've titled Ready, Set, Think. In the series, we're talking about all the unseen, unknown factors that influence how our brains function, like our mental framework. And and we're trying to look at the undercurrents, how that that thought influences us even before we're really aware of it. So we've talked about paradox. We've talked about how we see the world as being good versus broken. And all these thoughts are stirring my brain and and I can't really turn it off. And the world is dishing up all sorts of appalling situations um, for me to analyze. And uh, really, it's kind of like what's happening in your state, Hannah. I don't know if you've uh, felt like this series is is really just delivering you a way of analyzing all that's happening in the news. Well, you know, what's fascinating is that I don't know if there's like more scandals happening the last few weeks. I wondered that too. Or is it worse? I'm just more aware of how our thinking responds to scandals, how we respond to sc- scandals when right. they happen. And so it's almost like we're thinking about our thinking and that that makes everything <laughs> just feel really layered and really big. So I don't know. But I will say- I don't know either. But I, been, I feel the same way. It's like- here we are digging into it, and then everywhere I turn, it's like, oh, there it is, there it is, there it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I don't know if you've heard, but we've been kind of scandal plagued here in Virginia over the last week or so. So I've had lots of opportunity to think about things and to think about how I think about things. Right, right. I I've been keeping up a bit on the news. I've had a busier week, so I haven't been doing any deep dives into the articles. But it's more like I've seen the summary statements, and I, I kind of know the scandals. And every day when there's a new installment, I'm like, oh my word! It's like it just doesn't stop. And so I I can't imagine for you because this is your state, and you kind of know more of what's going on. It's right in your in your hometown basically um it must feel very close to you and like you know the players a little bit better and and maybe it just feels like there's more at stake because you know well the you people know what's fascinating the, and... well just to catch up all of our listeners and those who might be outside the united states um oh yes yes over the last uh week or so um it's come to light that um the governor of virginia ralph northam um had in his past, back in the 80s, um, wore blackface and been in context of some very racist photos and uh, racist gatherings. He, he's a Democrat and had 
run basically a platform of being a uniter and being against this kind of culture. And, you know, that came slightly after some pretty um, unclear, that's a generous statement, um, comments he made about late-term abortion. And so there was all this kind of kerfuffle around him. There were calls for his resignation on all sides of the aisle. Um, But then as soon as those calls came, there was scandal that broke around the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, who has had um, been, it's been alleged that he committed sexual assault um, back maybe, I think maybe 10 years ago. And so then, if that weren't enough, then our attorney general, who would be next in line for the governorship, Mark Herring, has come out um, and acknowledged that he, too, participated in blackface in college. And at some point, like, the entire state is, like, looking at each other saying, number one, what did we do to deserve this? And number (laughs) two, like, is everybody disqualified? from office right. and I, I think yesterday <laughs> who's next yeah, who's next yesterday <laughs> it came out that the i think it's the top republican in the senate the majority leader in the senate i believe was an editor of a yearbook um at vmi that had multiple photos of blackface people in blackface and lots of racist language so at this oh point word. i am sitting by my phone waiting to get the call to come to Richmond and be the next governor because they are going to work their way through everybody. This is the solution. Yes. And I think this is actually a good solution. (laughs) Really, let's just solve it. That's right. But but the question, which is um, an article that I've tagged, which I will put into the resources. Washington Post has an article with the title, uh, Was Everyone Terrible 30 Years Ago? So then the question is, really... What else do we all have in our closets? And is it all coming on out? Were we all terrible people? And really, this is just a change right. in terms of our perspective. So, so yeah, it is. I mean, it does make me wonder, well, who else is going to come forward and and what's lurking? Um, yeah. And- to see it one after another, it, it's so disheartening. Yeah. And in one sense, I think there is something really important to to own that yes this was systemic um the reason we're seeing so many people coming out or so many of these scandals coming to light is not because these individuals were uniquely racist or uniquely Mm. sexist they were part of a larger systemic culture and you're gonna find a lot of people participated in that and I think it's really important mm-hmm. to own that as that's who we were 30 years ago, maybe who we are and still in some respects. But the problem that I see happening around that is as soon as we own that it was systemic, these individuals then can say, well, that's just the way it was. So mm-hmm. I have less culpability. And, and the way things were or the way things are become a justification for our actions. So there's some kind of almost sleight of hand that might happen where we look, when we look back in history, we're like, well, yeah, today we would we would see that as inappropriate. We would see that as racist. But back then, you know, that's just the way things were. And, and we're almost saying we can't be held accountable 
for racism back then because that's what was the standard. Racism was the standard. Um, mm. So all it's almost like this weird struggle of, first of all, attempting to um, make people aware that it is a systemic problem that is it's huge and it's embedded and it's woven into the fabric of our society. But then once that acknowledgement is there, then the danger is like shoulder shrug. Well, that's just what it was. Right. That's that was then that that that's almost like it's justifying it as or, or separating it out. Like, well, that was that, but that's not today. <laughs> and so that's a that's an interesting um, tangle that we're in there with um, almost trying to ig- bring it to the forefront and acknowledge having people acknowledge that this is a, a, a very serious embedded problem. But then can it flip out, flip to the other side and make it seem like we can justify that behavior right? or detach ourselves from it? And I think this is a pretty clear example of how our acceptance of the status quo relates to our thinking. Um, Because something is so normal or so widely accepted, we can begin to believe that that is what should be. Um, I I Mm -hmm. honestly believe Mm -hmm. these men back in those moments didn't have a prick of conscience. Now, should they have? Yes, they should have. But they most likely didn't. They weren't going against their conscience because their conscience had been ill-informed. The status quo, the, the larger culture that existed basically validated and justified these kind of behaviors. And so mm-hmm. what yeah that that's part of it is the um what is normal or accepted it it almost like it it narrows our our responses to oh these things are okay without recognizing the larger picture of it so it's almost like it's a, a dampening of that conscience right and and that's huge to understand and what it how that thinking affects us and, and I think what it does in respect to this larger question of how we think and, you know, the kinds of uh, questions we're exploring in this series is we're really asking, does the world we exist in, is it what it should be? Is what is enough to justify things? Or is there a sense where we live in this space between things are a certain way, but we're hoping and we're working toward moving them to be something else. Um, You know, last week we talked about uh, whether we have a disposition of pessimism or optimism and how that affects our conclusions and and our thinking about a situation. But I think we also have to recognize that even though the world was made good and God is redeeming it toward goodness, we exist in this in between and our decisions and our thinking are happening in this space of Uh, being in what some people call the already, not yet. So Mm -hmm. when we look around at status Mm -hmm. quo or culture, or we make an observation about even what is seemingly quote unquote natural behavior, we really have to make a judgment call. Um, We have to say, is the status quo operating out of creational goodness? Am I seeing something that is yes, this is the way it should be? Or is what I'm looking at part of the curse? Is it part of the brokenness? 
that is um, such a good entry into why we're tackling this topic on this episode, which we are calling Thinking Creatively, because the, the notion here, Hannah, that you've presented is that if we are assessing the way the world is and taking that uh, kind of like unengaged, oh, that's just how it is approach, then we're just okay with letting things be status quo. We're okay with them as is. So our thinking is not going to be stimulated to what could be. We will not be thinking creatively for what is good, what is right. And we're not even interested in trying to make the world different because it's like, eh, that's just how it is. Right. So it's it's almost like this um, this type of thinking is do we see the world and and sense the call to look for what would God want this to be what what's the kingdom vision and are we moving toward that or are we just sort of self justifying and looking at the way it is and thinking ah eh, whatever. It is what it is. Right. <laughs> and and that affects everything of how we operate, our opinions, our stances, our motivations. Um, I, I think this is a key discussion in terms of how we will see the things that are wrong in the world and then how we will interact with them and respond or if we will at all. Right. And I think, you know, we work pretty hard at this title because we're trying to communicate two different things with it. We're, when we say thinking creatively, um, it's a call and allusion to the creation of God, to um, the divine order and the goodness that he has um, intentionally created into the world and using that as our standard for how things should be. So when we observe something in this moment in time under the curse, we have to have a standard of what God intended. You know, is this measuring up to God's creational goodness, to the creativity of a God who has made the world to operate a certain way? And so in that sense, we're using kind of creation as a norm and the flourishing of his image bearers and this kind of beautiful vision for human community and human life. But at the same time, we want to pull that thread of thinking creatively in the sense that when you see the status quo, you're going to have to have the ability to imagine something different. And I think that's one of the things that's so hard about coming to um, any issue is we do tend to get locked into what we can see. And we haven't really developed that kind of skill of creative or critical thinking or imaginative thinking that says, yes, this is the way the world is, but I know it should be different and I can envision what it would look like. And so that kind of creative thinking is both a call to the goodness that God has embedded in the world and evaluating status quo, social behaviors, ourselves in light of it. But it's also the ability on the other side to be able to imagine what it might be were it redeemed. And I, I love thinking about these ideas and setting this up as, um, like it, to me, it feels like this 
this casting of a vision, like, oh, yeah, let's dig into this. I, I think what I am struggling with and what I'm analyzing in my own self, I mean, as we've been talking about these ideas and these topics, and I'm, I'm, I am attempting to um, assess where I am in this and where I need to grow and change. I think most people, Hannah, most Christians would say, oh, yes, I, I believe in human flourishing. I know that God's calling us to this. But there are so many places where it's not playing itself out mm. in how I behave. Does that yeah. make sense? Like, I can agree with you on the surface that, yes, I... I I believe that we should be heading toward what should be and and something better. Like it doesn't have to be status quo. I agree with that. And yet I think those undercurrents that I don't even see, the things that are part of our society that just we aren't even aware of, I think those things have influenced me in lots of ways. And they do keep me from being engaged and thinking creatively for solutions and not just settling for where we are right now. Um, and I, I guess I'm starting to sort through, well, what are those things that um, that are part of our society, part of our thinking that we don't even realize they are there, but it is influencing us. Right. And I think what you're saying is we can get the big picture on these ideas, but unless we see it like an everyday example, yeah, it's really yeah. hard to grasp it or even hard to check ourselves and hard to know, yeah. oh, that's where I'm doing that. Um, mm -hmm. For me, a lot of these questions, you know, I operate a lot of my writing, a lot of the topics that I'm drawn to kind of emerge out of Genesis 1 and 2 um, about how human beings were created to live in community, how they are meant to flourish, what it means to be image bearers, what it means to be male and female, um, and how that all works together in this vision um, of, you know, scriptural vision, but also just this very human vision for our lives. And so one of the things I see in this question of, is this the way it should be versus what is, is when we talk about maybe human behavior or we observe the patterns of how humans relate to each other, um, there's this sense where like observation or science, or, or I would even say, you know, like even kind of Darwinian social models can tell you how people act. So there is this um, healthy need for observation to say, we see men, for example, being this way. They tend to mm -hmm. make decisions like this. They tend to mm -hmm. be prioritize rules or structures or the individualism or the objective. They tend to do this. Women tend to make decisions this way. And so we talk about these things that we observe about human nature. Um, but we don't have a larger frame of <laughs> determining whether what we're seeing is good. Is that the mm. way we should make choices? Is that the way, um, you know, we should be operating? But also, how do those choices interact with each other for the good of everyone? Um, one thing in particular I think about is, you know, there is this sense that the male of the species will be more sexually, have more sexual partners than females of species, whether it's 
in uh, the animal kingdom or even in human behavior. And so we kind of see like the sex drive or the male sex drive as quote unquote natural. Um, and that their difficulty in controlling themselves or being in monogamous faithful relationships is directly related to the male sex drive. And so we can observe Mm -hmm. that as a reality. And I even hear that creep into like Christian relationship advice or even marriage advice where it's like, okay, men have these sexual needs, therefore... If you're a good wife, you will act this way toward your husband. Or you must dress females. You must cover your bodies because men are sexually visual beings. And if you look a certain way, they will lust. So there's this kind of observation that says this is what is. Men are like this. But there's no evaluation of whether that's natural creational design is that the curse what should we expect from male behavior what is reasonable to ask men to do you know so and that's an example of okay we may all be able to agree that this is status quo this is what it this is the behavior we identify and can observe but can we imagine that behavior ever being different Can we imagine calling men to different behavior? Should we call them to different behavior? This is key because even in this one example that you've presented, I think that much of that mentality is what fueled the um, purity culture in in the Christian subculture and that has recently started to crumble a bit and people are starting to question the approach of it not not the intent the intent of it meaning um have your eyes set on marriage for the person you will be with but but the way that that was that was i guess executed it had very much a a, a leaning toward girls and how you are behaving because of, again, that the modesty part, the the promise ring, or you know the purity ring with your dad, or whatever. Um, all of that, I think, is packaged up and fueled because of this undercurrent, and we don't even see that that's the the fallout or the end result. And so the way that we think about these things, it is affecting our relationships. And I think you're right, Hannah, in saying that just because this is the way it is, what what could it be? And it doesn't mean that it is stamped, signed, done, <laughs> legislated and over with. And to have the the, I guess, the bigger vision of is that the the full flourishing? Right. Could could it be something else? And I think um, it's kind of encapsulated in the language of boys will be boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this yep. is just who they are. They are always going to be this way. And if you try to deny natural male impulses, you're fighting a losing battle. And, um, you know, I think the question needs to be reframed. It's not that men and women are not different. I mean, we are very, very different. God has created us to be different. And you don't want to take what is a good natural impulse 
that has been God-given and stifle that in either men or Mm -hmm. women. But what we have to get at is, is this thing we're observing actually a good God-given impulse or is it a corruption of a good God-given impulse? And so when I think especially about the rhetoric around uh, male sexuality, both within the church and outside of the church, because we have to be very clear here, as much as we will sit and have our intramural conversations about the way Christianity and the church has, you know, gotten this wrong, they've perhaps not gotten it as wrong as secular society, which links manhood to just this freedom of this sexual freedom. Like you can sleep with as many people as you want, you know, bet as many women as you want, have fun. And then somehow you're supposed to turn it off in marriage as soon as you get married. Right. And so right. like we're sending men, we're, we're, we're validating their sexual proclivities and encouraging and enabling them and then asking them to somehow fall deeply enough in love enough with one woman to turn it all off. And that's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But what I think... It is. Well, and as we talk about this undercurrent of Darwinian thought and how it's kind of woven into the fabric of our society, I think Christians in general would say, oh, no, we don't agree with that. That That's, you know, leaning into that evolution side. But I actually see... The same thing in terms of that mentality of survival of the fittest, um, where we we may give surface um, a denial to it, saying, "Oh no, we don't we don't believe in that. That's like denigrating um, humans and each person." But I do see the sentiment at play. Um, even in things like um, how we treat the poor and the opportunities that are limited to people who don't have means. And the people who do have means are able to then detach from some of these situations because they have the ability to put their funds elsewhere and hoard their resources somewhere else and kind of say, well, you're over there and you have to deal with the situation you're in. And if you are in the poverty category, it's probably because of something you're doing or not doing. And so that mentality of detachment, again, is sort of like, well, this is just the way it is. Um, I, I don't want to deal with the the communal aspect of when there are poor people who need help and I have resources. I don't want to have to deal with that. So it's sort of like that's on you. It's that attitude of like... Um, Almost like it's a a callousness toward yeah. others that I think comes from that survival of the fittest mentality, which we wouldn't ascribe to on the surface, but it is there. Right. It's underlying and kind of um, pushing our thoughts in that category. If there were something that I could convince the evangelical, the American evangelical church of, there were one thing I could get them to see is how much we all are swimming in the waters of social Darwinism. I mean, this has nothing to do with whether you believe in seven-day literal creation, you know, where right, right, that right. battleground. <laughs> There's more to it that than that. We more. all have been shaped by this sense that if you survived, you are the fittest. 
So Mm -hmm. there's almost this self-justifying element to power that if you are at the top, if you have wealth, if you have social power, somehow you deserve it by the simple fact that you have it. And if you are at the bottom of the heap, then obviously you are not the fittest and you have brought this on yourself. And so I, I think that plays into the question of just accepting the status quo. It's it's like the status quo justifies itself and there is no need for change. There is no need for questioning it because that is essentially the theory, um, you know, that Darwin promoted, you know, so long ago, but has really created our vision of the world we live in that the world as we see it is the world that was meant to be. Mm-hmm. That those mm-hmm. who were capable of surviving did. And those, and those who don't right. will be um, shuffled out and <laughs> will come to their demise. To their rightful and demise. I, yes. Yeah. Because, well, you just weren't, weren't up to it. Right. You weren't up to surviving. <laughs> you didn't Your have it in you. don't get to be passed on because they're not right. worth passing on. Because you didn't survive. And so it is like the validation of status quo. And and, and what it does, that kind of thinking does, is it basically removes any need for social justice, any need for questioning the systems that we exist in, any need for imagining a world that might be different and imagining a more just world, a world where everyone can flourish. And so it really, once you embrace things as they are, you lose a lot of motivation for changing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because all of your um, mental energies are really just set on keeping things in motion rather than breaking out of it for something better. And I think that's the the crux of this conversation that um, I'm excited about. And I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing what all of our friends out there are thinking about this too, because there's something about this idea of thinking creatively, of thinking beyond what we have to what could be, um, that I think that we with the Spirit's help, have this power to do that that is so exciting. Um, Because in, oh, well, in our conversation with Jen, um, Jen Michelle, she had mentioned this, that we become so locked into what we think that our options are, that we don't realize there are more options We just have to look for them. And um, there's something about how we see the world that we get it locked in and we think we know. So it comes back to that humility aspect and also realizing we don't know everything. And that acknowledgement that there is more, that allows us to not settle and, and to think bigger than what we are right now. Yeah. And one of the things that really bolsters my faith, even in the claims of Christianity and the scripture, is how often it challenges our thinking that Mm. the ways that God thinks and the scripture thinks are counterintuitive 
to what we would naturally come to. And to me, and, and this just may be my personal need, the polyagetic that I needed, was this recognition that I would never have thought that. And yet, yeah, once yeah. I do, that makes so much sense. So it's things like <laughs> um, the fact that the scripture talks about strength as being not necessarily what you're striving for, but that weakness is powerful. That with mm-hmm. God, our mm-hmm. weakness is made strong. It's things like um, turning over social hierarchies of saying that it, being a servant is how you attain greatness in the kingdom of God rather than lording your authority over people. Um, even something like the crucifixion teaches us that self-sacrifice is the way to life rather than self-preservation. Yeah. So, you know, Christ talks about losing your life to find it. And those who try to keep their lives will lose them. And so all of these natural, what we would consider natural impulses based both in our humanity and the world that we exist in, like the scripture confronts them over and over and over and over again, and basically says, yeah, that's a pretty lazy way of thinking about things. (laughs) (laughs) And Every time I hear, like you you run through that laundry list, Hannah, from scripture, and it's so beautifully jarring to me that it's like, oh my goodness, that's not my first th- my first thought. Like, I want those things to be the drivers of my life, but I it's such a good reminder that there are so many other competing thoughts that influence me. And I love the call, the first shall be last, the servants will be, you know, leaders of all or whatever. And and yet I I tend to still operate on these other levels. And so this is why I need to have these conversations and to point me back to that beauty of scripture and that call that flips everything upside down and reminds me. Yeah, I love it. It does. It's so and, good. And I love that it's not condemning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's more like the scripture and the Holy Spirit comes along and you're like looking at this image or this puzzle and you're trying to figure it out and your face is all like kind of you know your eyes are squinted and it's all screwed up and you're like oh i don't know what i'm looking at and it's like the holy spirit says here let me flip that for you right and he takes it and he just turns it upside down and then you're like oh (laughs) now i can see yeah and so the call of faith the call of the christian life of the christian ethic is one of creative thinking, of new Mm -hmm. paradigms, of a new way of living. And I think that's so fascinating that that's the language of of a new in kind, not new in time Mm -hmm. sort of life that we are called to. It is is a transformed life that, that looks very different than the one we would naturally lead. And it's an invitation into this this life of abundance and, um, you know, really this this way of seeing the world differently. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is a good note for us to wrap up this part of the discussion. But luckily, we get to keep talking about these things because we still have several more episodes to go in this series. And we have some really exciting things in the works. Um, I love our our look today on how we can 
be in the midst of this redemptive thinking, because really that's what I need, is I need my own thinking to be more creative and I need it to be redeemed. So I love that last call that you had there, Hannah. And um, we want to make sure if you haven't been able to keep up on the Persuasion series, I will make sure all those links are in the resources. But our first episode was Thinking It Through. Then we had Thinking Twice with Jen Pollock-Michelle and then Good Thinking. And we have several more still in the works. So um, we would love to have you join the conversation as well. And that means we need a question of the day. Hannah, do you have one for us? Yes. The question of the day relates to our shift away from accepting things as they are to what they should be. So I want to know what has surprised you? What has changed in your thinking where you used to look at something and say, yes, that is natural, that is good, that is what is or should be. And maybe the scripture or um, your Christian faith interrupted that. And now you look at it and say, no, that's not natural. That's not what should be. And I can see a vision for a different life or a different way of moving through the world. So the question of the day is, what did you once accept as natural that you now realize needs to be redeemed? And you can join us um, out in the Twitter verse. Is that what it's called? Yes. Um, at... Mm-hmm. Persuasion CAPC. We can chat it up there. Or as always, if you're a member of the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, um, you can talk to us and give your answers there. We want to say thanks to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Network. You can listen to them at ChristandPopCulture.com. You can go to iTunes and find us there. We would love to have your ratings and reviews so that more people can find us. But we are so glad that you come and you listen and, and talk with us. We thank you so much for listening to Persuasion. And we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.